What is going on, everybody? Hopefully, you guys are all doing well out there. Got another podcast for you all, number 172, getting deep into the triple digits. And there's even some, I think, hidden episode. I don't know if it's hidden. Hidden sometimes means like there's a surprise at the end. I don't know how great, though. I think some early industry summit podcasts are not included in that number. And there might be a couple other ones in there. So, anyways, we are here today. I got so much. I think people felt sorry for me. And so I really appreciate that. I don't think we have that many listeners, but I think a lot of people, my plea at that, well, one thing it does show that I think people, I don't remember when I mentioned on the last show that I had called for some feedback and nobody had responded. And so I thought I was, thought I was talking to myself in an empty room. But I think a lot of people must have felt sorry for me uh, because I've got I got quite a bit. I've got emails I still haven't gotten back to. So, and I've you know, I've got other, you know, I've got other things going on. I can't always, you know, I've got other email boxes and people that I got to talk to and this kind of stuff. And not that I look forward. See, the thing is, I look forward to the sports card stuff. So I want to give it my best effort and not kind of fly through it. Some of this investing stuff that I've gotten involved in the last couple months and uh, other things. Sometimes I don't want to talk to those people. I have no interest in talking to them. But uh, sometimes you have to anyways. Uh, got so I've got some inter- like I said I got feedback and I got a lot of interesting things to talk about. People enjoyed the show, so I'm going to. I've been like getting blown up on Twitter. I don't know. I posted a photo. And it doesn't really work that well for a podcast, but I'll, I'll maybe describe the photos that I took that kind of spurred some people getting uh, you know fired up, and that that's good. I like it. You know, it beats. You know, I don't watch Twitter because it's it's a lot of giveaways and. Oh, I got this card and I got that card. And that's great. You know, or, you know, I like seeing pictures of people's families or like if they have kids, the kids are open. Quite honestly, I kind of like looking at that stuff. But a lot of time it's, it's, uh, you know, 12 spots left and in 2014 finest and, you know, retweet this 18 times and we'll, we'll give it away. Or if I get to 800 followers, I'll do this. And it's like, forget, forget all that. So, but anyways, I'll talk a little bit about some of the points I've been trying to get across um, to the hobby. I think people are confused where my, uh, the aim of my, you know, barrel is pointing at. And I think a lot of you on the show already know this. So that's why I'll try to sum through it as fast as I can, because I think I've gotten my point across pretty well on this show. I don't need to, although people seem to enjoy the, the, uh, you know, the discussion, the open discussion of the industry. So I don't, don't mind it too much, but we're not trying to repeat ourselves and I'm not trying to sound like I'm bent out of shape about this every single week. So we have some other topics, um, grading cards and flipping them that came in directly from a user and and is actually a really good idea. And I've talked about, and I actually posted a, a YouTube video about some, some more basketball guys that seem to get hot every like week or two. Um, so we'll talk about that. Um, a little bit more in depth about check out my cards. Had a good month, sold over a thousand. I've been buying a lot of cards on check out my cards, but several thousand, um, maybe even, maybe even close to 10,000 cards in just the last couple months on there. So we'll talk a little bit about that and selling your collection. 
Actually, I think this guy got back to me and wanted to wanted to meet me. Uh, imagine that somebody wants to meet me in person. So um, I haven't got back to him. So it, it, what I'll do is I'll talk a little bit about on the show, and then I think I'll I'll meet up with him at some point, and we'll we'll discuss. Um, that, but basically selling your entire collection, somebody that has an entire collection of cards and, and, and they're trying to sell them and they often get that kind of, uh, answer or that kind of question. I mean, um, from people out there and it's a good question. What do you do if you inherit a bunch of cards or if all of a sudden maybe you, you collected basketball, football, and baseball, and now you just want to do baseball or you just want to do football or whatever it is, or maybe you just want to do vintage cards and you want to get rid of a, a, a large, chunk of cards and so we'll talk about that but before we get into that why don't i kind of go over just one bit of news and then we'll get into kind of the beef people had with me on twitter about a picture that i posted First things first, I think a lot of you will maybe be or have already probably heard this news and probably are very disappointed, but uh, the Cardboard Connection radio show appears to have, uh, you know, I don't know. I think they're calling it an end for now. I mean, who knows? It could be like Brett Favre or, you know, we're in the sports world. So people retire and then come back. And I think they've done that um, themselves in the past. I think they, they were around and, or, the, you know, they did it less regularly. So that kind of sucks. I mean, the good thing is, is there's a, there's other podcasts that have emerged over the last year. So Beckett has a podcast um, and there's the other one that I mentioned a few shows ago called Trading Card Preservation. And I think both of those you can find on on iTunes if you're, if you're on iPhones or, or you use that um, or through other means. I think there's lots of other ways you can you can find that. So that's the good news. Bad news is those guys were on two days, I think two days a week, three days a week. I don't know. I think maybe that was, maybe that's the, maybe that was the problem. You know, I think that if you, if you commit, that's why I've never committed, you know, I've said, Oh, I'll do these more. I'll do these more. But, um, uh, bottom line is I'm going to do them when I want to. And if a month goes by and I don't feel like doing it, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to have the pressure of saying, I do it these nights a week. So I think they kind of back themselves in a corner, maybe a little bit there. Um, and obviously with, I think a lot, those guys have families and stuff like that. And so, you know, it's kind of tough to, to devote yourself two nights a week to something that probably, um, you know, whether or not they made any money on it, it's, it's kind of regardless, but it's really the time. Anybody you can make money any stage of your life, but to get the time back, is probably the thing they probably thought the most about. I don't know that for a fact, but that's what I would assume, at least factored in a a lot to the decision. So I hope, um, you know, if you, if you were listening to that program, maybe you, if you haven't, you know, fit in some of these other shows to your, to your schedule, the Beckett one or the trading card preservation, there might even be another one or two out there that are kind of floating out there that I'm not aware of. So, Get out there. I encourage you maybe to fill those hours that you might have had there, maybe with one of these other shows that you may or may not have checked out. So that would be my best advice. But those guys worked hard. I think they almost worked too hard. That would be if you want my real, real honest truth opinion about the whole thing. So I think those guys worked a little too hard. 
and they probably weren't compensated fully for the kind of effort and the kind of things they were doing. I think if they were on their own, they could have, um, you know, probably pocketed a little bit more of the money or maybe had a little bit more flexible. I don't know, but seems to me that those guys also were, were at the industry, not the industry, some at the, the national. And they were like these MC, the, the national, you know, put these guys up there as like MCs of the, the breakers pavilion and God, they look like they were working hard. Look like they barely had any time to, to walk around and maybe connect with people. I'm sure they, they had an opportunity to do that, but most of the time I was tuning in, they were up there and they were, you know, having to kind of MC the whole thing. It looked like tremendous amount of work. Certainly not something I would want to do if I was at the national. I mean, I've never been, so I'd want to walk around and try to buy as much stuff as I could. They, I think, have been to the national for for many, many years, maybe even over a decade. But the guys worked really hard, so they deserve a break. Who knows if it's for good, but certainly, certainly the kind of promotional work that they did uh, will be felt in the hobby, and I wish them all the best of luck. But I, I think the lesson out there is probably, you know, don't make a podcast a job, I think, or don't make it more than than what you can you can do. I think that's the if you want to if you're out there and you're maybe you see this as an opportunity to start your own podcast. Um, I would recommend not setting a schedule, not really promising a whole lot and just do it when you can and make it more of a passion than obviously something you're going to make. If those guys were raking in, you know, if it was a big part of their income, they would, you know, they'd figure out a way to, to do it. But, you know, so you're not going to make a lot of money on it. It's going to be more of a time suck than anything. But anyways, moving on, I post, I went to a card shop the other day. And oftentimes I've been to this card shop and, and there's often some kind of gaming tournament. And I have to like walk through this mass of people to get over to the sports card aisle, which usually has nobody there. And um, so I posted a photo of the crowded gaming aisle and then the empty uh, card aisle. And I think a lot of guys just miss, misplaced my, my you know, I, I'm certainly not blaming the card shop. The card shop had a packed store. He's doing something right. Why can't the sports card aisle be packed that same way? I think a lot of people seemed, there was a lot of like kind of resentment to these, they like gaming people. And, and I just looked at those people as collectors. And as a shop owner, it's a way to make money. It's people that have money and are in there willing to spend their money and play games. I don't think sports cards needs to go into create games. I mean, they did with adrenaline and they didn't do their due diligence and got sued. I don't think it necessarily needs to go. I mean, Tops is probably taking the, the, the correct route. I don't think it will lead to a bunch of profits. It might be able to get them a better valuation when they're trying to sell. But the little mobile app games that they have are probably a decent attempt if you want to make a game these days. Plus, Magic the Gathering, you better believe, has patents themselves. And so there's some limitations there. You're not going to be able to just copy Magic the Gathering. I mean, you got to create a whole game from scratch. It's not easy. Wouldn't, wouldn't try it. But what gaming... I mean, I saw people in there buying packs of cards that have nothing in it. Come on. I mean, let's be real. There's no autograph. There's no jersey. 
why can't sports cards be the same way? Weren't sports cards a heck of a lot more popular when they were $1 and $2 packs and there were absolutely no autographs and jerseys in them? You bet you the, the industry was so much larger in those days. It's because it was affordable. It was it, when you're affordable and you, and you could sell it at a decent margin. Oh, no wonder the grocery stores did it. No wonder the grocery stores had packs of cards on the shelf. Because they were a dollar and they made 50 cents on the sale. Whereas if you buy some lettuce or buy a can of soup, they're making like three pennies. And I I looked it up. Uh, Hasbro owns the rights to Magic the Gathering, among other uh, properties. And they made over $200 million last year. With Magic the Gathering. And it's up over 180%. The last five years. The last five years. Tops royalty payments. Which is a direct correlation with how much product they sell. Is down about 50%. Over the same time period. And what what transformation has happened? Oh cards have just really gotten a lot more expensive. And so that that to me just I think people think I'm I'm you know I'm hating on a card shop because he's got half his store full. No. It's because the business model over there is working. The kids over there, I wouldn't call them all kids either, and there was girls. There was probably 10% girls there. Imagine going to a card shop and seeing 10% women inside. Sure as would be a heck of a lot more healthy demographic you could sell into if you had women and men. Well, go to the national. It's not only just men, it's a lot of old men. It's because people, one, they can't afford the cards on a regular basis. That's really, I think, the biggest barrier. And the companies really don't give you a whole lot of incentive to buy more than one pack. I mean, if one pack is $200 or $300 and that's all you can afford, that's all you're going to buy. Whereas if you had $300, you could buy 300 packs back in the day and maybe make purchases over consecutive days or consecutive weeks or month to month. So they've lost their price point and it's not the hobby shop's fault. People want to blame the internet and blame blowout cards and blame me for putting wholesale prices on my website. It's not my fault. I could post the wholesale prices to Rolex watches and guys would still pay 10 grand for them or whatever they cost. The Apple iPhone. If you want to figure out how much your Apple iPhone cost Apple to make. Oh my God. There's blogs all day devoted to that. One of the most covered things in the financial industry is how much money Apple is making. Is that stopping anybody from buying a freaking iPhone? Doesn't matter if the customers know the box costs 30 and you have it for 60. If they wanted the box, they'd pay 60 for it. Just like they do with iPhones and Rolexes and PlayStation and games and whatever. If you make a 
product people want, they'll pay for it. It's been proven over and over again. It's not the hobby shop fault that he has to buy it for 30 and Blowout has it for 30 as well. He has to buy it for the exact same cost he could, he could sell it online for. It's not Blowout's fault. It's not the internet's fault. And I think most of you out there that are listening to this could figure out really easily whose fault it is. If you want to sell, uh, how great would it be to be an Apple retailer right now, guys? Or a Rolex retailer. Fuck. You could sell watches all day for $20,000. Go rent some space in Bel Air or in New York or in wherever. Seattle. Go set up a freaking booth at the Super Bowl with some Rolexes and start selling them. Oh, just call up Rolex. Go get a, a wholesale license and go call Rolex. Think Rolex would do that? Think Apple would do that? Think Sony does that? Not that Sony's some great company, but you get the idea. And instead of like looking at the gaming aisle and being like, oh, F those kids or oh, those those gamers. I'd be figuring out a way to make them sports card collectors. I'd be figuring out what drives their demand to buy their cards. And it's because they need certain cards or better cards or more rare cards or whatever, some creature to play the game and win. And again, I think it'd be a disaster if a sports card company could do that, would do something like that. Where it's, I got to sit down and play head to head, but there's certainly kind of a fantasy aspect that you could tie into cards to where, oh, I am going to go buy these packs because if LeBron scores 30 points against uh, the Sixers, which shouldn't be a problem, I better go get this card. Or if I buy this card and the team wins the championship, I get this. A lot of easy tie-ins that have been used in the past. Or if I buy this card, it gives me the right to this. Or if I do this, I get this. Instead, it's, oh, I got to buy this card and hope it goes up so I can sell it on eBay. Or I better buy this card so if he hits four home runs, I can sell it on eBay. If that if that's the, the tie-in, if that's the only reason to buy cards is so you can buy them so they go up so you can sell them, then Panini should have its own exchange to sell the cards and take 4 or 5% off the top of every sale. Like check out my cards has done and and eBay and countless other ones. Why doesn't it Panini and Tops do done that? Sure, they've tried with stupid things like eTops and then they put morons like Mark Sapir in charge of it. And then he gives out fake memorabilia and doesn't run the promotion rights and the site goes away. People think eTops, oh, it just it just died. Well, yeah, because you had a freaking idiot running the whole thing. Anyways, the point is, I think you guys know this, the the blame for a lot of the issues in the hobby fall directly, directly on the shoulders of the manufacturers because they control the distribution. They control what's coming out. They control the price. 
And if they're not making any margin, how in the heck is a hobby shop going to make any margin? And it's not because the leagues charge a heck of a lot more. And it's not because there's exclusive licenses. It's because they don't know how to make cards profitably. Look at MTG. You don't think they have to pay artists and license fees and distribution fees and all kinds of stuff too? And they, they're they raking in the money. Every year it goes up. So until these companies actually hire some guy that knows what they're doing, what I, you know, it's really the only time it's going to change. You need these companies to change hands again. Not necessarily Panini, but you need Tops to change hands. That's my one hope. It'll either be a complete disaster and it'll go into the hands of somebody that does an even worse job. Or it'll go into somebody that says, you guys were doing it all wrong. Why didn't you just make cards like you did back in 1970 when you were raking it in? Put a stick of gum in there, put some kind of incentive in there, and call it a day. Charge three bucks for every pack. Look at Top Series 1. By the time you listen to it, it might have come out. I guarantee all of you out there, Tops could remove every single autograph and every single relic out of that product, and people would still buy it. And it'd be one of the top-selling products of the year. Maybe that should tell the industry something. Maybe you don't need autographs and relics to be the main driver of a product. And maybe one very reasonably priced product can set up five other products like a Series 2, a Series 3, and a Chrome version, and a Mini version. And you don't have to redesign all the freaking cards. It's already done once. And then all you got to do is maybe lay in a few new players, add 10 more players to the set. You've already got the cards laid out. That's half the, that's 90% of the work right there. Or with Chrome, oh, just throw this technology on it and call it a day. God, sounds like a great business model to me. And screw these athletes. Quit, quit paying them money to sign cards. And getting jerseys that they may or may not have worn. Forget that. I'd rather sell a guy a piece of piece of cardboard than something with that I got to get the player to sign or get his, put his jersey in it. God, that sounds like a horrible idea. Oh, and people still buy the cards when they're just cardboard. Look at MTG. Look at Top Series 1, which the majority of people aren't buying to hit. Like big hits. Yeah, if you buy a pack, it's great if you get an autograph or a relic, but that's not the only reason. And not the primary reason most people get excited about that product. Anyways, moving on. Let's, Let's not, you know... I've got better things to do than just harp on what I've been harping on for the last year, two years, three years, four years about. Let's get into grading cards and flipping them. Uh, an email, uh, an emailer contacted me, obviously. If he's an emailer, he contacted me via that route. But he... Um, Contacted me and actually gave me a really good topic to talk about on the show. What he does is he's focused on the basketball card market. I think basketball is a good market to be in because you got 12 guys 
And so it's actually easy to judge when there's roster spots open and when a guy gets hurt, it clearly ushers in the other guy. Whereas the NFL, it's a little bit different. If Tom Brady gets hurt, there's no guarantee Garoppolo is going to win the Super Bowl himself or going to do well at all. Same with running backs. One running back gets hurt. You know, I mean, Giovanni Barnard got hurt, but it ushered in Jeremy Hill. And it was just the opposite last year. Ben Jarvis Green-Ellis got hurt, and it made Giovanni Bernard one of the hottest rookies. And now he's, you know, a second-string running back. So it's tough in football. Your lifespan is shorter, I think, in the NFL. Um, Baseball, there's just so many prospects that you could, you know, your odds of not hitting are probably pretty high. Whereas basketball, only two rounds in the draft. Really, the first round's the only one that matters. There's only 12 guys on each team, basically, that, that matter. And there's a limited amount of stars. And so when one of those guys get hurt, it opens up a heck of a lot of opportunity. So grading cards and flipping them, I think, can work across. Uh, I've also got a lot of requests about older cards. And I think we will talk about this strategy. I'm not going to talk about older cards today, but I'll set up kind of my thoughts about it and read a little bit more about what people wanted me to talk about and then I'll get to an I'll do that on another show so for those of you that ask for kind of vintage card older card stuff I will talk about that I heard you guys and I will talk about that but grading cards and flipping them often is a, a vintage card strategy because you can hunt around and find a card that you know you you could have a set that's really condition sensitive there are guys out the trading card preservation podcast is one example. Those guys know details about sets and condition that, you know, really hardcore collectors are going to know. And so knowing that information that that gives you advantage kind of in the vintage card game where you know that a PSA eight or PSA seven is essentially like getting a 10 with newer, more modern cards. The strategy seemed to be focus on, Focus on a little bit lesser player and buy their card cheaply, get it graded, get a high grade on it, hopefully, obviously, and then turn around and sell that when the player gets some kind of bump. And we've talked about it. I talked about on a show or two ago, Robert Covington, Shabazz Muhammad, who who later got hurt, and I think a couple other guys in the NBA. Now... Hassan Whiteside, his, if you go look at Hassan Whiteside's stats, he's getting only like 20 minutes a game, but he's putting up really nice numbers. If he were to, could project into that 30, 32 minute per game, he could very well be kind of like a baby, uh, Anthony Davis, or maybe even as good as Anthony Davis. I don't know if I want to say that, but, or be on record saying that, but he has a lot of the same athletic ability, not quite the athletic ability Anthony Davis has, but He's probably a little bit better rebounder, believe it or not. So he's kind of the 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 you know the cup of tea of the week or whatever they however that saying goes. Uh, the flavor of the week, I guess, is how it's how it's normally said. Um, but that happens a lot in the NBA. I guarantee you, by the time you listen to the show or a couple weeks from now, there'll be some other guy in the NBA that that has gotten a little boost. So you can play the game. You can buy the cards really cheap. And I mean, like just a month ago, Hassan Whiteside's National Treasures was a $10 card. Now it's a almost a $300 card. And he doesn't even average 10 points a game. So it shows you, and everybody thinks, oh, the NBA, nobody cares about the NBA. A guy that's not even averaging 10 points a game, his cards have gone up, 
you know, 30 times in just a month. So, but grading, um, obviously you want to have a keen eye if you're buying this stuff online, hoping to, hoping it arrives in good condition and then you send it off to get graded. That's tough. I think if you, um, if you're in that game, you know, take it slow. You know, you don't want to buy a bunch of cards thinking they're going to be PSA nines and tens. And by the time you get them back, the, the guy, the guy, you know, you miss the time to sell it. That's also the tough thing. I think this, this strategy could be very effective at a card show because you can go to the card show, look at the card and have it right there in front of you, be able to determine a grade, get a, 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 you know, chances are negotiate a decent price with somebody and then go walk four booths over and then go get it graded. So you don't have any of that may the potential of getting damaged or kind of bent up a little bit in the mail or in and out of a case. It's that easy. You can just take it over, get it graded, and then you know maybe get the high grade and go turn around and sell it right away. Not realize any eBay fees or any shipping fees or anything else. So I think it's kind of an interesting strategy. Um, I, there's a lot of of interesting strategies out there in cards where you can minimize your risk of losing a lot of your money. Um, like buying boxes of cards, like going broke, buying boxes of cards could happen very easily if you don't have other income coming in or expecting to buy and sell boxes is your primary way to make money. Think about that, guys. How much skill does it take to, to call up a distributor and say, Hey, I want four boxes of finest and then have it show up and then you slap a price on it. And if, if, if business was that easy and you were making a million dollars, everybody would be doing it. If cell phones and making the software was, it was so easy, be a lot more people than like Apple, Google, and Samsung making billions of dollars in the, in the cell phone market. Yeah. You know, how great would it be to be a cell phone manufacturer right now? Or some app maker, mobile app game maker, or some video game maker, or, you know, make basketball sneakers that are heck of popular. If it was that easy, everybody would be doing it. So the people that take risks and t- get into business models that are actually very difficult, they get rewarded with millions and billions of dollars. If all you do is call up GTS, hey guys, you got any cases? Oh yeah, we got some cases. Cool click ups shows up and all you have to do is put a price on it and customers walk in the door no wonder you guys don't make any money got to be more creative got to have multiple hopefully dozens of ways to make money and buying cards or acquiring cards at a low price that are in good condition getting them graded is one way to um you know again are you going to make millions of dollars doing just that no you have to be PSA. I'd rather you buy shares of Collector's Universe, which is the owner of PSA. Much rather you buy shares of that. They pay you a dividend every three months, which means they pay you money just for giving them money. You don't even give them money. You just buy the shares from somebody else. Just for doing that, they'll give you money. So instead of thinking, I'm going to you know, run through a million dollars through PSA in a year, you're not going to do that. 
But if you look at it as here's some side income I could have where it's going to be seasonal and it's going to be hit or miss. But if I do hit a couple of these throughout the years, it might be worth a thousand dollars, five hundred dollars or maybe even upwards of maybe five thousand dollars. If you really take it seriously through a whole year and five thousand dollars, a lot of money. Even out here in California where rents are, are a lot more expensive than than other people. Unless you live in New York or in Paris or somewhere like that. Or on the beach in Miami. So I like that strategy. Moving on though. I don't want to make this super long. A little bit more details about check on my cards. Okay, my strategy with check... Do not send cards in to check on my cards. Unless... That's not the strategy, I think, with check on my cards. I do send cards in to check on my cards, but I do not really monitor or really care how much those cards sell for. Occasionally, I make a little bit of money on cards like that, but you're you're not going to really make it a stream of income doing that. that. That's how check on my cards makes money. Check on my cards makes money by you sending in cards and then people buying them and then shipping them to themselves. That's how they make their money, obviously. That's how all their fees are associated. Obviously, there's some storage fees and some cash out fees, but there some of those. The cash out fee probably definitely makes them money, but the storage fee. I mean, you should see these guys' warehouse, and it's apparently almost all at full. Building like that in the neighborhood it was in is probably not cheap. But really, there's a lot of people on check out my cards that'll blow out cards for less than ten cents. And that's really where you're going to make a lot of your money. You're going to buy a card for five cents and sell it for 10. You're going to buy a card for nine cents and you can sell it for 18 cents. You're going to buy a card for 11 cents and sell it for 24 cents. Now, obviously, stack up four or five, a hundred, even a thousand of those transactions. You're not talking about a lot of money. But stack that over. Uh, I've been at this for several years. And I've put more in and I've reinvested the money. It's basically like, it's just like buying like a treasury bond or again, something like Collector's Universe or something like AT&T stock. You're going to buy shares and they're going to pay you every four months. And it's, I mean, yeah, if you have 10,000 shares or 100,000 shares, if you're able to afford that many, yeah, they're sending you a lot of money. But in relation to how much money you invested, it's not really that much. I mean, you'd give them three million for three thousand bucks or thirty thousand bucks. It's not that much money. But if you slowly build that up over time, over the course of years and thousands and tens of thousands and a hundred thousand over a hundred thousand transactions, then yeah, ten cents times a hundred thousand is some money. Twenty cents times that number is is even more. So you can get the idea. That's the strategy with check on my cards. Get on there, buy the 10 cent cards that you can sell for 20. And there's a whole strategy involved in that, but it'd probably be better for like a YouTube video. So if I feel like doing that one day, I'll go through and make a YouTube video of exactly the method that I use. Again, I don't care who the player is. I don't care what the set is. I don't care what the sport is. If the price is right and the demand is there and there are ways you can see this on check out my cards more and more. I mean, he's adding more of this data for you to see. 
you can easily see if there's demand for a card and a price and you can you know there's there's a couple other things involved that are better for a video but the money to make on check on my card unless you can acquire cards cheaply you might as well i think if you're doing that you might as well just sell them on ebay because it'd be so much faster but if you if you are acquiring tens of thousands of cards really cheap Sending them in to check out my cards might be more cost effective because then you'd have to list them all and ship them and handle customer service. It'd be easier for you to just consign them on to check out my cards, basically. Speaking of consigning and selling, um, I was actually at, I was in Vegas like two weeks ago and I went to the my last uh, day in Vegas. Obviously, you have to check out at at noon, at whatever hotel you're at or whatever. And I could have gotten like late. Sometimes you you can call them up and say, hey, I want to stay till three. I think you can stay till three in most hotels. But honestly, the next day there was like some huge convention coming. I had to pay a fortune for my hotel like on a Tuesday night. I think it was like a Wednesday night or Tuesday night in Vegas. Usually one of the cheapest nights in Vegas was the most expensive night I ever stayed in Vegas because there was like some builders conference or something, a bunch of, bunch of builders. So I guess there's a lot of home building going on, but anyways, so my last day there, I had to check out, couldn't, couldn't push back the the hotel um, before I had to leave town. So I went to the gold and silver pawn shop. So that was kind of fun. Um, Obviously Corey and Chumley and those guys weren't there because if you made the kind of money that they've made on a TV show, I probably wouldn't show up at work either. But, um, or I'd only be there when they needed to, or majority of the time I'd be there only when the TV show was there. But I got a great deal on some earrings, like some custom, they were like brand new. They weren't like used earrings. They were like brand new. Um, and it was like, I just pointed the ones I want. They said, let me go see what price. I was willing to pay probably closer to the full price. And they came back with a great deal for me. So, um, I thought it was pretty cool. I'm probably going to make it a, um, obviously I didn't buy the earrings for myself. I made them kind of for my wife and it kind of like smoothed over when I came back from a week in Vegas with my buddies. I was literally there with my brother and another friend of mine and my wife was, I'm going to sound like a terrible husband, but I was there for a conference and I did develop some relationships and I will probably whatever I spent on my week in Vegas, I'll, I'll make back. Maybe not all in one year, certainly not one month, but over the course of time, all that is really actually excellent time spent. I went to Affiliate Summit West, and for the if you're into affiliate, if you're into making websites to make money, I mean, you gotta go. Or if you're interested in that, you gotta go. It's really a good conference, and and I'm actually looking forward to um, watching the videos. I didn't have a lot of time. I mean, I'm in Vegas, I'm having fun, I'm you know staying up a little too late having a little too much to drink. So I'm not waking up and, and pounding out these conferences, you know, but that's where a lot of the value is. And I'm able to watch it. They're, they're, you know, cutting down the videos and, and all that. They supply you with the video of all the presentations. So I'll be going through those in the coming weeks. But anyways, just thought, I think now it's a tradition. When I go to Vegas, I'm going to go to the pawn shop every time, buy some jewelry or buy something for my wife. And it makes it, makes it a lot more pleasant uh, when you get home. Although I might have to buy some more, more earrings at some point, but, or do better than some earrings. Anyways, selling your tire collection. When I was in the pawn shop, that's what it kind of reminded me. I didn't see a lot of people, quite honestly, it was a lot of tourists and, and not a lot of people selling. I think there was a small line for people, you know, picking up pawns or paying or whatever. 
more majority of the people there are kind of looky loose. But kind of reminded me of if you had a bunch of boxes of cards, you could bring them into a pawn shop like that and get them to offer you a price for it. Now, obviously, if you've watched the show or if you know any kind of dealings with that, the card shop owner is going to tell you it's going to take me a lot of time to figure out what I got here, let alone sell it. So he's going to offer you at a bargain basement price. And I think that's the decision. If you want to sell all your collection or maybe you inherit a collection or maybe, like I said, you you collected all these different sports or you had collection as a kid and you, you still want to maybe be involved in cards or have a couple left over, but you want to get rid of a lot of it. You have to ask yourself, how much time are you willing to take? Do you know if you need if you need or want the money or just want it? It might not be that you need the money or want the money. It might be that you need the space. And sometimes that is more valuable than the money that you're going to get for the cards. Maybe you need the space or maybe you need to downsize. Maybe you're just tired of looking at it. Maybe your wife is about to leave if you don't sell it. And trust me, out here in California, you don't want to get in a, a divorce. It would cost you a heck of a lot more than just selling your cards for too cheap. So I think you ask yourself that question. If you if you need to get the space or if you need the money or whatever, be willing to take a really low offer. Otherwise, you're going to be loading that stuff back in the car and driving home. And the consign- the, the sports car dealer or the pawn shop is going to know this. They know they have massive leverage on you. If you're willing to be a little bit more patient, obviously the obvious route is if you, if you sell each one one on by one on eBay or you set, box it up and you send it in to check on my cards and you sit there and you price all your cards and you wait for them to sell. That that idea doesn't doesn't gel well with people either because it is a lot of time. Even if you send it in and check on my cards, you have to be on there and you you know the money might slowly trickle in. On eBay, obviously, you got to do all the work and ship it out, and that that's a headache too. I think the strategy is if you're kind of in between, you don't really need the money super quick, but you'd like it, or you don't need to get rid of them all right away, but you're moving really soon, or you'd like to free up that space for whatever reason. What I would do is maybe curate what you have to sell. So in other words, if you have all these football cards, maybe instead of trying to sell them all at once to somebody that will probably likely want to buy them to resell them, curate them a little bit. What I mean by that is take maybe all, maybe you have a bunch of Green Bay Packers. Maybe out of the 50,000 cards you have, you have 10,000 Packer cards. That's that's actually a really nice asset. Take all those Packer cards out and either you know, chop them out into individual lots or sell all those 10,000 Packer cards at once, you're more likely to find a collector that will want to buy that. There's not a lot of collectors out there that want to buy a random box of 50,000 cards. There are guys out there, but the majority of the your buyers are going to be sellers. And so they're only going to be willing to pay you a certain price. But if you list 10,000 Packer cards on eBay, or, you know, more manageable number might be a thousand Packer cards on eBay, all in one lot. You're going to get dealers that are sure as heck going to want those cards, but you're also going to get some collectors because a collector, a Green Bay Packer collector, would love to have all those cards. 
And so that's what I would do. Maybe you have specific eras or specific sets or specific players, whatever it is, chop it down and chop it down into your own manageable. You know, if you got a lot of cards, you know, group it together as best you can. And then whatever you have left at the end, then I would, that's something you can just dump at a pawn shop or dump at a card shop or dump all at once on online and get whatever you want. But if you have some nice cards and they kind of match up a little bit, I would try to group them together and maybe instead of doing one big auction on check on my cards or on eBay, I mean, you can do auctions on check on my cards too. I don't know if I've talked about that. I think I talked about that on the show. I haven't really messed around with them that much, um, but that is an interesting thing they're getting into. But instead of doing one big auction, do five of them or 10 of them. And it might be, you know, shipping out a thousand cards is certainly a lot easier than 4,000 or 5,000 or 6,000 cards. And the cost is obviously more reasonable, not only for you, but for the buyer. And the more you shrink the the shipping cost, the more that money kind of goes into your own pocket because a collector is always going to factor in shipping costs. And if it's $100, $200, that is going to come right off the top of your auction. So that would probably be my best advice would be to piece it out into lots that you know that collector is going to want whether it's certain eras of cards, certain players, certain teams, certain sets. There's lots of ways you can kind of lump it together and then put that lot on eBay. And then not only are you going to get collectors bidding on it or wanting it, you're going to get dealers too. And that kind of mix will be perfect. The dealers will bid it up to the price that they want. And then the collectors will come in over the top and give you a premium that you wouldn't likely have gotten if you had them all kind of mixed together into one lot. And that, I think, folks, we'll cut it off here. So thank you very much for tuning in again. Thanks for a lot of the feedback. I got a lot of feedback on the email. I've been, you know, people, uh, you know, I, I'm i not on Twitter to post links to my website or to get you to do something, get you to retweet or get you to enter my contest or whatever. I'd much rather have conversations with people. And most of the time when I'm having conversations on Twitter, I'm kind of a jerk. That's kind of my angle on there. Maybe in a year or two, maybe when I have kids and I soften up, maybe I won't be like that. But for now, and I mean, given where I'm from, I'm from one of the most dangerous cities in all of California. And California is not a necessarily a safe place to live. I'm from one of the more dangerous places so i guess you know as i travel like i'll travel to other places and and obviously i had lots of friends in college and i realized like wow you guys went to so much nicer schools wow people didn't bring guns i even taught i remember teaching at a private school here uh in town where i live and i was like wow eight you know like i remember teaching and like like early on, like the teachers would be like, oh, yeah, watch out for so-and-so or watch out for him. You know, he's kind of a troublemaker. And I was thinking, oh, man, what is he going to do? Sell weed, you know, be trying to sell dime bags in, in class? Or is he, you know, going to be trying to go out and smoke a cigarette? Or is he going to bring a knife to school? You know, because that was what happened when I was in seventh, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. 
guys are smoking weed, guys are smoking cigarettes. You tried to ditch out and go drink whatever liquor you just stole from your parents. You tried to take some pills that somebody had. I mean, no, these kids were like saints. It was, oh, he kind of talks too much or, oh, he doesn't always stay on task. And it's like, you kidding me? So it was, it's funny. So that kind of plays into my attitude as well. And that kind of comes across on the show. But I'll be honest with you. I've met people that have listened to this show. I've gone to Monday Night Football. I've gone and stayed over at people's houses that listen to this show. I've met people at card shops and took them out to lunch. And we ate lunch together. And we hung out pretty much the whole day with people that multiple people that listen to this show. And I'm not there chewing their heads off. And I'm not there being mean to them. And I guarantee you my wife would have never married me if I did that. And I'm literally still trying to fill out car. I literally have more thank you No, I got married last March at the end of March of last year. And I'm still sending out thank you cards. And I li- my wife and I literally have a, a large room filled with gifts. We don't even have a room <laughs> where we live to store all the gifts that we got. So clearly... I mean, a lot of that is because my wife's just an awesome person and has a lot of family and a lot of friends too. But clearly, I don't need it. Honestly, I don't need any more friends. So I don't try to go online and make friends online because I have probably too many in my real life. And I probably don't get to spend enough time with a good majority of them. But you out there that are listening right now, you are my friend and you are somebody that um, just even if we never communicate via email or on social media or on the phone or in person, I appreciate you listening and you're the reason why I do this and you're the reason why I have I honestly I have a lot of fun. Might sound like I'm all bent out of shape, but believe me, it's about lunchtime right now. After this is over, I'm going to go get myself some lunch and get a Coke and watch the last 30 minutes, 40 minutes of uh, stock market trading. Go watch some basketball a couple hours after that and make some dinner for my wife when she gets home. And that's about it. But if there weren't people out like you out there that are listening right now, I wouldn't be able to do this. And I wouldn't, you know, at least be able to fill part of my day feeling like I've talked to somebody and uh, maybe informed, maybe entertained, maybe gave a little laughs, maybe turned you off, maybe made you mad, whatever it might be. To me, it's all about the same. In the entertainment business, I remember a marketing teacher telling me this when I was probably like 19 years old. I just got to college. Didn't know crap. Thought I was super smart and, oh, you know, top of my class in in some ghetto-ass town. And I get to college and a professor says, Colin, in the entertainment business, if they hate you or they love you, it's the exact same thing. And... Through all my life, through all the Eminem, the rapper, uh, Tiger Woods, all the different, you know, throughout my life, it really has played through that not only with athletes like Richard Sherman, look at Richard Sherman, look how many people hate Richard Sherman. I think Richard Sherman is, is really bummed out about that. Absolutely not. 
This is all part of his plan. He went to Stanford. He knows exactly what he's doing. And when I blast off and I go on Twitter and I'm, I know exactly what I'm doing as well. And I know most of you out there appreciate it and are entertained. And so that's really what I'm trying to do. So I appreciate long story short. Thank you very much for tuning in. I, I genuinely appreciate it. And I hope every, I genuinely hope everything's going well in your life. And if you ever want to send me an email, it's sportscardshow at gmail.com. Understand I get back to those as, 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 as quickly as I can. Sometimes it goes, you know, a week, maybe even a month goes by before I can handle it all. But genuinely know that I appreciate that and I do my best to follow up with everybody. And I'm probably batting a pretty good percentage. And you can you can email me and tweet me disagreeing with me, but just understand that there might be some consequences to that. If you take it a little too far, there might be some consequences. And I'm not scared to go there. But the majority of what I get is positive, and all of you out there are positive in my mind. Thanks for tuning in, folks. I'll let you get on throughout the rest of your day. If you're at work, stick a middle finger up to the boss, close the door, do you know, go outside, act like you're you just picked up a bad habit, and relax. Last hour that I remember when I was at an office job, it was like I think I had to be there from eight. I was usually from there to eight to six. I mean, good God, that was a tough job, but it wasn't really a tough job. It was just tough sitting there from eight to six, basically. So, and you know, I had an hour for lunch, but that last hour from five to six, or sometimes I'd, I'd be able to get home at five 30 or get, get done with what I needed to be at sometimes five, but that last hour was tough. You know, I'd turn PTI on or I'd turn sports center on or whatever and kind of kick back, make it look like I was working. I suggest you do the same. Thanks for tuning in. We are out of here.